Live from the Burt Park, USA, I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you right now. Download our app and listen to us anywhere in the world in real time. Download the app right now at KBLA 1580. Uh, should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places to get the podcast and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. And let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour. Have you ever thought about the impact, the threat, in fact, that social media and nonstop content pose not nearly to our minds and our human interaction, but to the stability of our republic. Get this. New data suggests that most fellow citizens think social media is undermining our very democracy. A conversation with award-winning journalist Ray Marcano in Hour 2 about the significant ways in which social media challenges our ability to engage in thoughtful, critical, and civil Dialogue In our third hour, a conversation about the art of code switching. Is code switching a form of assimilation or a necessary survival strategy in a world where our differences can create barriers to connection? And what happens when keeping it real, so to speak, goes horribly wrong? We'll be joined in hour three by an expert in these matters, Harold Wallace III, of Wichita State University. But let's commence today's program talking politics with Washington, D.C.-based HuffPost reporter Paul Blumenthal, who I'm delighted to have back on this program. Paul, how are you today, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on again. Hey, it's good to have you back on again. It's 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 hard to know where to start. Uh, so much to talk about in this hour. And then again, um, it's easy to know where to start because I want to hone in on something that it seems like I've been discussing like every Monday. It happens all the time, but I was thinking this morning for the last three or four weeks consecutively, every Monday when we start out the week, there's a new story to unpack about another mass shooting in this country. So there are two headlines uh, all over the place this morning. Uh, One is a story of investigators scrambling to find whoever killed four people, including students, and injured dozens more at an Alabama Sweet 16 party. So in the state of Alabama, Sweet 16 party, four people killed, including students, many others injured, dozens more injured uh, in Alabama. In Kansas City, a teenager was shot by a homeowner after going to the wrong house to pick up his siblings. Um, Just a gorgeous picture of this young black brother playing his saxophone in the in the band. Uh, And um, he went to the wrong house to pick up his siblings and got shot a couple times, a few times. Um, just, just unbelievable. Um, what this country is, uh, is enduring, uh, unabated Paul when it comes to guns. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, I'm kind of, I'm going to be frank on the one hand, I'm tired of having this conversation. Um, nothing seems to move on it. Uh, and yet it's one of those things where if we ignore it and we don't talk about it, then it will certainly continue. As I said, unabated, 
So here we are again, another week uh, with another mass shooting. I, I've lost count. I mean, we we are obviously, uh, as I've said many times, averaging many more mass shootings uh, than we have days in the year. Uh, last time I checked, we were at 100 days in the year. This is last week. We were 100 days in the year and 140-some-odd, 143, as I recall, something like that. 100 days in the year, 143 mass shootings. That was last week, so the number obviously continues to rise. I digress on the point for now. Your take, Paul on this issue of guns uh, and gun violence, uh, whether it's in Alabama at a Sweet 16 party or a young black teenager, uh, a black teenager in Kansas City going to the wrong house. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's just, as you said, just continues to be a depressing fact of life in this country. And, you know, very little seems to be getting done. I mean, there's appears to be no appetite for this in Washington with Republicans in control of the House, with uh, the filibuster still existing in the Senate. Um, you know, there were also mass shootings in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. which, you know, spurred the protests in the legislature, uh, mass shooting in Kentucky as well. Uh, and in both of those people who died were friends of, uh, you know, elected leaders, Governor Bill Lee in Tennessee, Governor Andy Bashir in Kentucky, Senator Rick Scott here in Washington. Um, and, you know, he, Despite this, their friends being murdered in mass shootings, very little is is getting done. And I mean, you just see the influence of the the gun lobby in this and also the influence of the Supreme Court, which has, you know, last year made it so much harder for any state or locality or the federal government to put restrictions on guns. Um, You know, it's, it's a it's a depressing situation in this country we have uh leave it to my trusty producer jd to give me the the facts um we are now 107 days in as i mentioned just last week i we got 100 uh when we talked about this last so today we are 107 days into the year uh, uh 160 mass shootings 107 days into the year 160 mass shootings i wonder if i say that you know every week uh whether or not uh, it would impact our consciousness about how bad gun violence is in this country. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know, since nothing else seems to move the needle. But once again, 107 days in the year, we are today 160 mass shootings and counting. Paul Blumenthal a moment ago uh, referenced the mass shootings in Nashville, which uh, led to the protests in the uh, Tennessee Assembly, which led to the ouster uh, of two African-Americans, both named Justin, uh, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. Uh, Justin Pearson has been a guest on our station here. Um, Eloquent brother, eloquent, eloquent. Um, And um, the um, the sister, Gloria Johnson, uh, the white woman who was with them but did not get expelled, uh, I believe is a guest on our program tomorrow. Is that correct, Jada? Yeah. So she's a guest. um, I've I've heard we've all heard from the two Justins. They've been everywhere. Uh, And um, I'm glad that uh, Justin Pearson made his way to KBLA. But I am uh, interested to hear from from the white woman, from this from the sister in this regard, who did not get expelled and what she has to say. So I believe tomorrow morning in our nine o'clock hour, we will be joined by uh, Gloria Johnson, the other state rep uh, involved in um, as part of the Tennessee three, as they are being called. She'll be one of our guests tomorrow in our, our first hour. When we come forward, though, I want to uh, get Paul's take on the way that story played out. Uh, it was ugly. It was nasty. It was racist to my mind, and a bunch of other things uh, that I'll talk about on the other side. And yet, when all was said and done, um, the two members, the two Justins, Pearson and Jones, are now back where they belong, back to where, uh, sitting in those seats, uh, to which they were duly elected. I was with uh, 
my friend and brother Raphael Warnock, who was in town this weekend. We were together Saturday and, and Sunday. Spent a lot of good time together this weekend. We hadn't seen each other in a while, and we spent some time talking about um, this Tennessee drama. And I want to take Paul's temperature on that when we come forward. We're in hour one, just getting started here on a Monday. Uh, our guest in this hour is HuffPost journalist Paul Blumenthal. A great deal more to unpack as we move through this hour. Don't move. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 15. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Our guest in this hour is Paul Blumenthal, HuffPost journalist, and I am pleased to have him on uh, back on KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. Glad to have you tuned in on this Monday. Uh, Paul, let me uh, go right back uh, quickly here to uh, Tennessee uh, since you teed this up. Um, I don't need to color this question much more than this. Um, we all saw uh, what happened. Uh, we all saw, at least at this point, how it has ended. Uh, I'm not sure this is the end because I, I suspect there's going to be a great deal more to come from this. Uh, people seem to be empowered and inspired and outraged and and exercise their agency in a variety of ways. And that's why these two brothers now are back in their seats in the Tennessee Assembly. But uh, take some time, uh, take take a few moments and give me your thoughts on how you saw this all play out. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think you described it well, and uh, you know, this is. Uh outrageous abuse of power by the Republican legislature that was clearly uh, racist in intent and in action, um, you know, that they uh, targeted these two men and, and uh, the woman, Gloria Johnson, I believe is her name, mm-hmm. um, for, for taking part in this, this protest, this nonviolent protest against gun violence by cynically likening it to the January 6th insurrection to call for their expulsion and then only expelled the two black men legislators and not the white woman, which, uh, you know, I mean, it, it couldn't be clearer than that. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, the, the, this really shines a spotlight on this Republican legislature in Tennessee as being totally out of control. I mean, they've, I believe, passed a, a bill last week or at the beginning of or even today that will, you know, aims to ban the the connection of racism to slavery in education. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, th- this is just uh, wild what's going on in this country, and and this is just very clear. I mean, it, it you know harkened back to Julian Bond being denied his seat in the Georgia State Senate back in the 1960s. Um, you know, it, it it's ugly to see this kind of stuff return. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> do you think that in any way the gun lobby or Republicans um, were damaged by this? Clearly, at the end of the day, you know, the two brothers again returned to their seats. Uh, Republicans tried something that succeeded momentarily uh, and then it boomeranged on them. Uh, and yet I am wondering whether or not you think um, that there was significant damage done to uh, Republicans uh, and their agenda uh, any damage done to the gun lobby, or is this just uh, now simply a return to business as usual? I mean, I, I think that there's been a lot of negative attention on the Tennessee Republican majority in the legislature, a lot of stories coming out about, you know, its members uh, having, uh, you know, inappropriate relationships with staffers or other kinds of corrupt instances, um, you know, the kind of stories that we don't get when there's a dearth of local news. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, you know, federal out- or national outlets pay attention. Um, but in the long term, I'm just not sure that the state is so heavily gerrymandered 
it's uh, hard to challenge that in the courts right now. And, you know, the Supreme Court may make it, you know, totally legal to gerrymander forever. Uh, so I, I'm not sure what the, the the victory line is here. Perhaps it moves some some votes in Tennessee in uh, suburban and urban areas towards Democrats. But it's a it's a very polarized state along rural and urban lines and uh, heavily gerrymandered. It would be very hard to change the makeup of that legislature right now. Yeah, um, a lot to talk about in this hour. As I said moments ago, I want to talk as we move through the hour uh, about uh, uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, about whom you have written. Uh, and uh, Clarence Thomas uh, could, in fact, face uh, uh, an investigation now. We talked about Clarence Thomas last week. Uh, on this program, when this story broke from ProPublica about his gifts um, and the, the the lavish gifts and the trips he's taken uh, from Harlan Crow, this uh, billionaire mega donor, uh, uh, conservative uh, uh, billionaire mega donor, um, we talked about that story last week, and so now um, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has called for an investigation, a DOJ Department of Justice investigation into. Clarence Thomas Hidden Gifts. We'll talk about that a little bit later in this hour. Uh, of course, there's always Donald Trump news. We'll get to that uh, in this hour. Mike Pompeo, Trump's uh, former Secretary of State, um, has announced he's not running for president. So that's uh, one we can take off the list. But we'll talk about the impact of his not running uh, as a Trump um, uh, devotee uh, for the Republican nomination. And uh, at the moment, I want to get to this story. Congress. Uh, is back uh, today. Uh, they've been away for a couple of weeks, uh, Easter recess. They are back in business, and two members are returning to their seats. Uh, Mitch McConnell has been out uh, for a while uh, with uh, with an injury, and uh, uh, John Fetterman, who beat uh, Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, uh, was away as well for uh, a procedure. Uh, they're both back in their seats today now that uh, Congress is back in session, uh, and so is Dianne Feinstein. Um, 89-year-old Dianne Feinstein, um, who has asked for some time away from the uh, uh, her committee, uh, Judiciary Committee. But this story is getting bigger and bigger and bigger, um, Paul. Uh, again, Dianne Feinstein, 89 years old, has already announced that she's not going to run for re-election at the end of her term, which would be uh, 2024. Um, so she uh, is suggesting that she wants to ride it out until the end of 2024. But everybody knows, given her... Uh, condition right now that um, she's not managing uh, these issues that matter to Californians. And obviously, when you're a U.S. senator, you're serving the entire nation, obviously. Um, so that um, there are calls now um, for her to step aside. Um, just as there are calls for Clarence Thomas to be investigated, there now uh, is starting to be uh, a growing chorus of voices calling for Diane Feinstein to step aside. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, smack dab in the middle of this because if she were to retire, resign, uh, he would be allowed to appoint someone. They're already complicating the story a bit more. <laughs> there are already three Democrats running to replace Diane Feinstein, even though she is uh, um, still in that seat. Um, uh, Adam Schiff is running. Uh, Barbara Lee is running. And Katie Porter is running. Uh, all three of them, members of the House, all three of them announcing that they want to step up and run for, in fact, are running for that Senate seat. So this story of Dianne Feinstein gets a little more tricky because uh, now she's pretty much stepped back from her duties. 
uh, at the national level, Paul Blumenthal and others are keeping their eye on this. We're here, of course, in Los Angeles. Uh, this station's heard across the country, but flagship in L.A., so we're keeping our eye on it from a California perspective. All that said, just want to give a quick backstory to where the story is at the moment vis-a-vis Diane Feinstein. Paul Blumenthal of Hope Post, your take on this. Well, I mean, you know, there's been a question going on for a few years now about Feinstein's ability to continue to serve uh, in her role as, as senator. Um, you know, there have been many stories uh, suggesting uh, increased senility or dementia due to old age, um, her forgetfulness, not understanding questions. You hear it from congressional reporters all the time. But now she's been, uh, you know, in in uh, hospital care or at home being treated for what they say is shingles um, and has been missing a significant amount of time uh, from the Senate. And her role on the Senate Judiciary Committee makes her vote very important in this closely divided Senate. Uh, you know, with only 51 Democrats, they need every vote they can get to be able to advance judicial nominations. And without her there, there's been sort of a standstill on Biden's push to uh, get more progressive judges nominated and put on the bench. Um, so, I mean, that's why she said that she would step aside from her committee role, but that needs to be approved on the floor of the Senate and that needs support from Republicans. Uh, and a lot of Republicans are saying they don't want to help Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer out to appoint more progressive judges. So they're going to try to block this. I mean, I think if she wants to help the democratic party get more judges on the on the bench in Biden's first term, I think that you know the easiest way to do that is to resign her seat and allow Governor Newsom to uh, appoint a replacement. Yep. And yet, um, at the moment, at least, <clears throat> excuse me. Yet at the moment, she seems pretty stern, uh, pretty obstinate uh, about not stepping aside. And, and uh, let me just be clear: I, I don't get this. Um, for all of you who voted for Diane Feinstein, as I have in my you know in in her career uh, as. Uh, Senator for this state, uh, three decades and counting. Um, it seems that all of us at some point have voted for Diane Feinstein. Uh, some of you, no doubt, listening right now have voted for her perennially. And yet I do not understand why when persons reach this advanced age uh, and they are having all kinds of issues. And let me be very clear. Every one of us has to at some point do that dance with mortality. And none of us going to get out of here alive. We all have to do that dance with mortality at some point. But for the life of me, I cannot understand why they won't step aside. And the parallel that I keep thinking about every day, Paul, and this won't surprise you, um, is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Here was another uh, white woman, to be frank about it, who had a great deal of power. And let me be clear, white women are not the only ones who hold on to power too long. Frankly, they don't have as much power as white males. So white males have uh, written the book on this, as it were. So I don't mean to make a particular point about that. I'm just saying that both of them happen to be um, white women with a great deal of power uh, who obviously are very, very bright and and, and, and don't seem to understand, and, and in Ginsburg's case didn't seem to understand, and that they were hurting the causes they cared about by staying there. And I can't peg this to anything other than ego. I, I, I don't get it, and we all have an ego, but I can't peg it, Paul, to anything other than ego. I am still upset, uh, God rest her soul, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg for not stepping aside when Barack Obama begged her uh, in a private meeting in the White House to do so, she would have none of it. In fact, we were told in books that have been written since then, she was offended that the president, uh, Obama at the time, tried to get her to step aside. 
Now we have Don Feinstein. It's abundantly clear you can't do the job to which the people of California elected you. She will not, apparently at the moment at least, will not step aside. And what hangs in the balance, again, are more progressive judges. And you potentially are holding that up, blocking that, making it more difficult. I, I, I don't get it, Paul. I don't know why she won't step down, and I don't know why Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't step down. That's just me, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're right there. Uh, and, and certainly about the, the Senate and the Supreme Court, I mean, these are two places where you get a lot of big egos and you also um, get this belief that you're supposed to stay as long as you can, you know, mm. maybe even die in office. Um, and, and, you know, back at when Obama was first president, he had a challenge in the Senate with Ted Kennedy and mm-hmm. Robert Byrd, both being quite ill in their advanced age and mi- missing votes. A lot of stuff had to be postponed or delayed or they had to believe they had to wheel Robert Byrd in on a, you know, a hospital bed so that he could vote for some things. Um, and there were calls for them to resign at the time, too. And they did not. They waited until they died in office. And, uh, you know. I guess this is just a thing that some of that that is what people want to do in the Senate or the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm not I'm, I don't get it personally. Yep. And to your point, these issues are so they're, they're so connected. Right. We're, Biden is uh, has been pushing to his credit. He's been pushing rather aggressively to get more judges uh, appointed. There are a number of things I could take uh-huh. Joe Biden to task for. Uh, he's not been as progressive as I would want him to be on a variety of things. And I think sometimes we get hoodwinked, bamboozled. Uh, run amok and led astray uh, by all the symbolism we get from the Biden administration with all these black faces in high places. I ain't mad at the president for the symbolic gesture of putting a lot of powerful African-Americans in some pretty significant positions, including, of course, KBJ at the U.S. Supreme Court. And yet I don't want us to get sidetracked by the symbolism and, and not talk about the substance. And substantively, the president could be a bit more progressive as far as I'm concerned. We'll save that conversation for another time. Uh, but on this issue, he has been working rather, uh, I think, assiduously and aggressively uh, to get more judges appointed and to see Dianne Feinstein sort of standing in this gap uh, and not able to move uh, out of the way is problematic for me. As I say, it reminds me of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I don't get why people who have spent their entire lives pushing a more progressive agenda could see that they're staying where they are uh, is potentially causing irreparable damage, as was the case with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and they can't seem to find it in their heads or in their hearts to just step aside. Don't get it. Uh, I will step aside for the moment. When we come forward, we'll continue our conversation with our Post journalist, Paul Blumenthal. A great deal more to unpack in this hour. We haven't gotten to Clarence Thomas yet. We haven't gotten to Donald Trump yet. Uh, more stuff to unpack as we move through this hour. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. We're glad to have you listening today to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. Our guest in this hour is Paul Blumenthal. HuffPost uh, journalist, and uh, we are kicking off this Monday as we do most Mondays, trying to catch up on all the political news, political news that is, over the weekend <clears throat> that you might have missed. Excuse me. Um, a lot to uh, unpack in this hour. We've talked about a lot of stuff already, but um, a great deal more in front of me that I want to move through uh, on the back half of this hour. Let me start with this. We were talking earlier in today's program. We started today talking about, in case you just tuned in, uh, more mass shootings over the weekend, no more shootings, period, including a young black teenager, a boy who was shot by a homeowner after going to the wrong house to pick up his siblings. Uh, just a mistake on his part to pick up his, uh, his siblings and he ends up shot a few times. Just sad and tragic. Uh, we talked about that. We talked about this um, shooting in Alabama, Sweet 16 party. 
four people killed, uh, dozens other hurt, dozens of others who were hurt in that in that uh, another shooting in Kentucky. We didn't even get to, but these mass shootings continue. Uh, I mentioned also earlier, 107 days into the year we are today, 107 days into the year, 160 mass shootings so far. Uh, and counting, sadly. So Donald Trump, speaking of those mass shootings, Paul Blumenthal, has had this to say, uh, that mass shootings are not a gun problem uh, as he continues to pledge his loyalty uh, and force others to do the same uh, to the NRA. But that's Donald Trump's words, that mass shootings in America are not a gun problem. Your thoughts on Trump's comments? I mean, I think that, you know, it just shows how uh, much... These Republican candidates have to appeal to the National Rifle Association, to the gun lobby, to the gun industry, uh, to to you know get support from people who are uh, you know gun enthusiasts, people who are obsessed with guns. And I think that obviously the facts show that whether it's mass shootings or more commonly just you know the the kind of ordinary gun violence that that doesn't come along with somebody trying to get themselves killed by the cops. Uh, that happens every day in this country. It's, you know, this country is overflowing with guns. Uh, you know, the gun industry has pushed guns in advertisements all across the country, even after mass shootings. Um, there are more guns in this country per capita than maybe any other country, certainly any other uh, European country or, or Canada, even some Central American countries. Um, and then you, you just need to look at uh, suicide statistics um, and how high they are here. One of the reasons why is just the easy availability of guns. And, um, you know, a lot of people try to commit suicide by other ways and fail, but you definitely don't fail when you try to shoot yourself with a gun. And, I mean, it, it's just very clear. Every statistical uh, piece of data shows that the reason why we have so many shootings in this country is because of the prevalence and easy availability of guns. Well, there you have it. Um, won't surprise this audience at all, but Donald Trump is on the record once again saying today that uh, uh, mass shootings are not a gun problem. Okay, Mr. Trump, uh, I'll leave that uh, right there for the moment. Um, let me, uh, since we're talking about conservatives, move now to uh, Clarence Thomas. So we all saw the news last week when ProPublica uh, broke this story, a very detailed story, uh, uh, Definitely written uh, by uh, this reporter uh, about what they had uncovered, reporters, what they'd uncovered vis-a-vis Clarence Thomas and his friendship with a conservative billionaire mega donor named Harlan Crow. So apparently over the years, Mr. Thomas, Clarence Thomas has taken uh, lavish gifts and trips uh, from his friend Harlan Crow. Uh, at first the justice, uh, tried to stay out of it. And then the heat got so hot in the kitchen that he had to put out a statement. His statement essentially was that I didn't know I had to report this stuff. Okay. If you believe that. So you are, you are a graduate of the Yale law school. Uh, you are the longest serving member of the Supreme court, uh, at the moment. Uh, and yet you didn't know that you had to report this stuff. Okay, Mr. Thomas. Um, again, that's his response. Uh, now we have a Sheldon Whitehead, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, I should say, Sheldon Whitehouse, um, now calling for a Department of Justice investigation of Clarence Thomas's hidden gifts. So this story hasn't hasn't died. Uh, I guess the question, though, Paul, since you're inside the Beltway, um, what's your assessment of what kind of legs this story has? And I ask that because Clarence Thomas, 
has been caught on the carpet for all kinds of things. For that matter, so have other justices. And there seemed to really not be a code of conduct, a code of ethics, uh, a code of conduct for these Supreme Court justices. Um, they're doing all kinds of stuff, it, has seen, it, it appears, leaking documents and taking trips and gifts, et cetera, et cetera. And they are not treated in the way that others are. Uh, when it comes to playing by the rules, uh, I digress on that point. But what kind of legs do you think this story has? Or is this another story where it'll get some traction for a few days and Clarence Thomas will skate once again? I mean, it, I, I think it should have more legs and, and, and perhaps the Democrats in Congress could do more about it to give it more legs. Um, you know, the, they control the Senate Judiciary Committee. They could hold hearings on this. They could call Clarence Thomas to appear before a hearing. Um, instead, you know, Senator Whitehouse and, and Senator Dick Durbin have called for the Judicial Conference, the body that oversees ethics of the federal judiciary, to refer Thomas to the Department of Justice for investigation. But they could, you know, Durbin is the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Whitehouse is close behind him. And they could hold hearings. They could call Thomas to, to testify. And I don't see any reason not to. Uh, it's very, as, you, as you mentioned, it's very clear that, that Thomas you know, he should, he, he's a judge. That's his job. He's supposed to be able to judge what law applies to what. And here he says, you know, I didn't know I couldn't do that. It's hard to believe that, um, that he's been caught before in 2004, the Los Angeles times reported on other gifts he received from the same billionaire Harlan Crow Mm -hmm. that he had failed to put on his ethics disclosures. He failed to list his wife's payments from think tanks, from educational institutions, from conservative billionaires uh, on his disclosure forms. Now we have, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in luxury trips paid for by this billionaire. The same billionaire also bought his mother's home from him, which he didn't list that purchase on his disclosure forms. His mother still lives in this house and is apparently not paying rent to this billionaire. Uh, So, I mean, there's just a huge list of ways that he is, uh, obtaining extra money, gifts, benefits from wealthy people who have business before the court. And it's hard to believe that, um, you know, he just didn't know that he couldn't disclose this. It's, it's, it's beyond belief. It's very clear that, that he's in violation of the ethics law here. So now, now you raise something that's always been fascinating for me. Um, not the first time I've discussed this, not the last, I'm certain. Um, but I'm, I'm listening to you run this list of all the things that Clarence Thomas has apparently done over the years that he's gotten away with uh, as he votes uh, every other day, it, it seems, to, to, to take this democracy, uh, this experiment in democracy backwards. Um, this country at its best has always been about expanding rights. He's been at the forefront uh, for decades now of leading the effort to shrink rights in this country, uh, his his behavior, his bad behavior notwithstanding, um, we know what his political agenda is. And when you run this list of all the things he's done, he's gotten away with, my mind <laughs> immediately went to, to why it is that Democrats behave the way they do and Republicans behave the way that they do. To your point, Democrats control the Judiciary Committee. That same Judiciary Committee we were discussing earlier is where Dianne Feinstein sits, having now asked for some time away from the committee to pull back from her responsibilities. Uh, We were talking earlier, in case you've just tuned in, about why she just won't resign. Um, She's standing in the way in a very closely divided Senate, and I think she ought to resign and give Gavin Newsom the opportunity to appoint someone to her seat. That is becoming more and more of a political um, 
uh, hot potato uh, as the days go by. We will see what happens in the long run. But she has said she wants to serve through the end of intends to serve through the end of 2024. Frankly, respectfully, I don't see it. Again, we discussed that earlier. But back to Democrats who control the House, the Senate Judiciary Committee. You have to believe, Paul, that if Republicans controlled the Senate Judiciary Committee and they had KBJ or Elena Kagan or Sonia Sotomayor with all the stuff that Clarence Thomas has done, if they were guilty of the same, you can best believe they would call hearings. Um, how might I put this uh, sooner than at once? And quicker than right now, sooner than at once and quicker than right now, there'd be hearings called um, to undo Kagan and Sotomayor and uh, and and, uh, and and KBJ. They have they have on the hot seat in front of a Senate committee uh, immediately. And yet Democrats, to your point, have that same power, but they won't do it. What what what, what are they afraid of as you see it? Uh, personally, I, I am not sure what they're afraid of. Uh, there seems to still be some kind of, despite everything we've seen with the Supreme Court in the past few years, uh, some kind of strong deference to the court's authority, to the court's legitimacy among Democrats, even though, you know, this is not the Supreme, this is not a Supreme Court that's going to step in and protect civil rights, civil liberties. Um, it's, it's the exact opposite kind of court. And they're still out here trying to protect its legitimacy for unknown reasons. Um, you know, Clarence Thomas, clearly in violation of the law here, they have total power to call him before Congress to testify, total power to call Harlan Crow, any other mm. associates involved in this to, to testify. And, and they're deferring to the Department of Justice, which is, you know, you know, that that DOJ should be investigated as, as well. But the, the Senate and Congress should use their power. They have the power to do this. Yeah, this this station uh, is unapologetically progressive. Um, the audience uh, knows that. And yet um, it troubles me how Democrats can be so spineless, so scared, so scary. You, you've got the power. Um, the evidence is in front of you that you're complaining every day that you need to fix the Supreme Court, uh, to your point about legitimacy, it has very little legitimacy left. Uh, the, the, the numbers, the poll numbers are pretty clear of how little trust and confidence the American people have in the court. But Democrats are always complaining about the court. They're complaining that Merrick Garland should have been a Supreme Court justice in the Obama era and not the current uh, 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 attorney general. Um, so here's your moment. Here's your moment. And, and, and some would call this, if they call the hearing, clearly many would call it partisan politicking. It's not. It's not. The guy has broken the law and he's acting like he didn't know he had to report this. You have him right where you want him and you're afraid to use the power that you have to call hearings. Democrats have no spine. They kill me. I digress. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Paul Blumenthal of HuffPost on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, Paul, uh, Mike Pompeo, who was Secretary of State, of course, during the Trump uh, administration, uh, has announced that he is not running for uh, president. Uh, Nikki Haley, of course, who was also a, a Trump lieutenant, uh, is in the race. Uh, I, I was waiting to see whether Pompeo was going to get in because it would be fascinating for me uh, to see how this race rolls out with all these Trump lieutenants, former lieutenants, um, running against him. But Pompeo says he's not in. How'd you read that? 
I mean, if you just look at the polls, uh, you know, no, nobody's really getting much traction aside from Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, maybe Nikki Haley a little bit. Uh, Mike Pompeo looked at the polls and saw that zero percent wasn't a good number to, to run on. So I guess that's why he he isn't taking the plunge this year. Yep. Um, and, and that may be the case with with some other candidates. I mean, that they're. There just isn't a lot of room when when Donald Trump is uh, on the ballot, apparently. Yeah. Speaking of poll numbers, uh, and I'm not sure I believe in these. And certainly when it comes to the presidential election um, of uh, 2024, we are light years away. uh, And yet uh, it's uh, difficult for the media to not cover the horse race, particularly as we move closer to the point where Joe Biden will officially announce. Uh, he's on NBC last week and said once again he intends to run, but has not yet formally declared um, his candidacy. So we expect that in the coming days. What we do know um, is that uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, has announced that he is going to challenge uh, Joe Biden, intends to challenge him, um, so that Joe Biden will apparently at least be primaried uh, by one candidate, uh, again, Robert Kennedy uh, Jr., uh, but there's some new data out this morning from Politico. And when we come forward, I want to share these numbers. Um, but there's a huge story in Politico uh, this morning that says Biden's poll numbers look grim as he preps for re-election bid. Biden's poll numbers look grim as he preps for re-election bid. And these numbers don't look good. Um, I'll unpack them for you with Paul Blumenthal when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Got about five minutes left in conversation with Paul Blumenthal of the Huff Post uh, as we talk politics uh, uh, in this first hour today. Let me just read to you the first couple paragraphs of this story from Politico. You can uh, uh, Google it and read the entire article for yourself. But um, the headline, once again, Biden's poll numbers look grim as he preps for re-election bid. A deep dive into the numbers reveals President Joe Biden isn't just struggling with independence and near unanimous disapproval among Republicans. He's also soft among Democrats and left leaning Democratic um, groups. Biden is not yet officially announced he's running again next year, though he said he plans to. Uh, Polls show his approval rating is hovering in the low 40s, right around the mark where some of his predecessors who were denied second terms sat at this very point in their presidencies. According to 538, Biden's average approval rating stands at 43%, about nine points lower than his 52% disapproval rating. That's only one point higher than Trump's 538 approval rating on April 15, 2019, at the same point in his one-term presidency. So the point here, again, is that his numbers would indicate, um, as compared to other presidents who were running for a second term, his numbers at this point indicate that he could very well be denied a second term. Of course, you can't beat somebody with nobody, so somebody's got to run against him, somebody's got to beat him. But, Paul, your thoughts on the data out this morning from Politico? Um, I mean, it's not great for Joe Biden uh, to be hovering in the low 40s, but uh, you know, you, you mentioned some some presidents in their first term have been at that same place at the same time and lost re-election. Uh, some others have also won re-election, whether it's, um, you know, Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama, who were also hovering in the low 40s at, at, around this point in time uh, in their in their presidencies. So, I mean, it's still early. And also the, the likely Republican nominee will be um, Donald Trump, who is. Uh, quite even more unpopular than than 
Joe Biden uh, has seen his numbers drop after his indictment, uh, especially among independents. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the issue that you, you mentioned in that political article with, with Biden is that the big thing that has seen his numbers go down recently is among Democrats and particularly young Democrats. Um, and it's not entirely clear why it's possible this could be related to climate change positions like the allowing of the Willow uh, oil drilling project to go forward in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it remains to be seen if this is just a temporary fluctuation. But but it's true that, that, you know, Joe Biden wasn't a lot of people's first choice in 2020. Um, and I think that this sort of reflects that fact. Yeah. Two things in the two minutes I have left. Uh, uh, I am always struck by the fact it, it sort of tickles me on one hand. Uh, but I'm always struck by the fact that seasoned reporters like yourself uh, continue to say that Donald Trump is the likely Republican nominee. Every time I hear that, I, I, I laugh because I'm thinking of all the indictment already that's come forth. There may be other indictments and the 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 the, the media uh, contingent in D.C. still seems to think that he's the odds on favorite to be the nominee. Why do you feel that way? I mean, I guess I haven't seen uh, any evidence to, to prove otherwise. Um, you know, it is it is, it is still early. Ron yeah. DeSantis could, when he when he actually announces a, a campaign, could challenge him. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it, the polling is very early, but I, I just don't see anything to change that. And considering, wow. you know, the past from 2015 and on, since he, you know, came down that escalator, it's hard to... Yeah. to not take his position in the party seriously. And as a, as a reporter, uh, in the 60 seconds I have left, as a reporter, <laughs> how do you process that we could see Biden, Trump, too? I mean, I, God help us, but how, how, how are you processing that? Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's hard to explain, I guess. Um, it, it, it's just uh, going to be another crazy election cycle, the third one in a row. Um, and, and who knows, maybe Trump loses and then runs again in 2028. Uh, you know, yeah. who, who knows when, when we'll get rid of him. Yeah. To, to your point about young people being turned off by this process in the most multi beyond being young in the most multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic America ever. Two old guys, two old white guys running against each other again does not excite mm-hmm. me. It does not. I, I think turn out if that's what happens. I think we're going to see historic lows and turn out two old white guys running each other a second time. Good Lord. Anyway, I digress. Paul, good to have you on. We'll do it again, my friend. Take, take good care of yourself. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, my friend. Hour two of Tavis Smart after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.